0: Good morning, everybody, everybody here, as well as those of you watching online. Thank you. It's nice to be back. (laughs) Yeah, if uh, you're new with us or missed last week, I uh, had to be home. I had to do my sermon on somebody came to in-person service for the first time since COVID started and said, how ironic you are having to be home because I've been exposed. (laughs) So uh, yeah, hey, I just wanna say Hope Academy, one of the best, I love, love, love this organization and I'm so glad that we are taking some of our bless monies and applying it one semester for one student. Uh, What they're doing there, uh, Lois and I have been there a couple of times for their annual banquet and, um, and then we have people who have helped in that ministry. What they are doing there is just absolutely, absolutely amazing and fits all that checks off everything that I would want to see in an organization that's trying to have that kind of impact. So check it out uh, on your way out. Take the virtual tour if you get a chance. It is an incredible, incredible organization. You will not regret finding out more about them. All right, so I want to encourage you to open your Bibles. If you would, please turn to Romans chapter... 3, Romans chapter 3, and we are in week 6 of our series called The Gospel Journey Back to God, and it's a series on the first four chapters of Romans because it covers… Uh, Romans really breaks down into four different sections. We're going to do them as four distinct uh, uh, series uh, and interrupt it. So we… I, I don't know, I haven't mapped it out but, uh, I- exactly, but we will be uh, in Romans over a long, long period of time uh, because of that. So this will be wrapping up here pretty soon. This first uh, series, and last week we looked at Romans chapter three, verses twenty-one through twenty-six. Kind of focused on those verses, and in those verses, Paul explains why Jesus had to die. That was one of the things. That's what we looked at last week. And so, the short answer is, Jesus had to die because that way, that was the way that Paul, uh, that God, could be both a God of justice. Okay? A God of justice against evil, and at the same time, be a God who can make us right with Himself, declare us right with Himself, make us righteous. All right? it, it, it took the death of Christ. So, in verse 26, it said, God gave Christ as a sacrifice, the Father gave God, God gave Christ as a sacrifice to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so as to be just, and the one who justifies. Jesus had to die so that God could make us right in a way that was right, in line with his, his character. So how does Jesus' death accomplish this? That's what we're looking at today. How is it that Jesus' death accomplishes this? And here's what Paul says. These are some of the most theologically packed and impactful verses in the whole Bible, okay? Uh, verse... 24, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood. Now, there are three really important doctrines of salvation that are contained within that. And the first one is justification, and it's by grace, justified freely by His grace redemption in Christ, the redemption that came in Christ, and substitutionary atonement through the sacrificial death of Christ. That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at those three things, justification, redemption, atonement. Actually, we're going to talk about atonement in terms of propitiation. I'll explain that a little bit later. But here's what the Apostle Paul, if I were going to summarize what the Apostle Paul says, um, it would be this. The death of Christ was an act of grace that redeems those who put their faith in Jesus by making us right, through His atoning or propitiating sacrifice. A lot of big words there. But right here, if you look at those words, this is some of the most impactful expressions, if not the most impactful kind of short expression of what salvation is about, as the salvation message. And it is revolutionary. We'll talk about that. Uh, it's cause for praise and absolutely deep gratitude, and the more that we understand it, and hopefully you walk out of here today with greater understanding about those three doctrines, those three teachings of the Bible, the more you understand it, um, the more it is going to have an impact on your life. It is an epic story contained in those three uh, ideas are just an epic story. Before we do that, we're going to pray. And uh, this prayer of illumination is based on James chapter one. So please join me. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, we come to you asking that your truth be revealed. By your Holy Spirit, grant us understanding that we would not only hear your word, but that we would do what it says. Guide us to the wisdom that you so generously give. Give us or grow us to be all that you have called us to be. May the knowledge of your truth lead us to faithful obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have one of our five okers read the scripture for today.
1: Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus.
0: All right, so what did the death of Jesus accomplish for us? Now, I just want to focus on that last part of that that I'm asking right there, for us. What does it mean by us? By us, it means anyone who's put their faith in Christ, in what he has done. Put their faith in God, in what he has done in Christ, that is us. Paul is very, very clear. We receive what Jesus did on the cross, we receive it by faith. If we don't put our faith in what God has done, if we don't want to put our faith in God, in what he has done it has no benefit for us. I want to make that really clear because this isn't just something that automatically happens. And hopefully, if you understand more deeply what happens, you would leave here if you have not put your faith in Christ. You would indeed put your faith in Christ so that the benefits that we're talking about here can be benefits that impact you now and for all of eternity. All right, so that said, Jesus' death accomplishes our justification. Justification is a word that we do use in everyday life, but it's not, uh, what it's talking about here is not in the same way that we use justification in our everyday language. So justification and the verb to justify are from the same root, in the language that Paul writes in Greek, from the same root as the word righteousness. Uh, So if you were to translate it, kind of, not translate, but take the word to justify and want to capture that in English as it is in Greek, you would say something like, to righteousize. But that isn't a word in English, all right? So in English, we have two words to describe what is basically one word group, okay? Two words to describe what is basically one word group. So when Paul is talking about justifying us and justification, he is talking about righteousness. He's talked a lot about righteousness up till now in this letter. And when he's talking about righteousness, he's talking about justification. And so, in verse 22, for example, it says, this righteousness is given, okay, that's it's given to us through faith in Christ, all right? And then later it says, and all are justified freely by his grace. To be justified is the same thing as to be given righteousness, all right? And you would see it if you were looking in the original language, how clearly it's the same word group. Um, talking about the same basic thing. Now when Paul says in verse, what Paul says in verse 21, we we noted this last week but I want to I want to drive this home again today. What he says in verse 21 is absolutely radical because he's been building this case that we are all under sin and we are all under God's wrath and then he says, "But now, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known." So, What is righteousness? Um, I want to share with you some thoughts that Tim Keller gives on this that that are just, I think, really, really good and, and help to understand it. So he speaks of righteousness as a validating performance record that opens doors. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you, it will in just a second, all right? This isn't necessarily a definition of righteousness, but this is a kind of an explanation of how it works, how righteousness functions. It's a validating performance record that opens doors. Now, if that just sounds really weird to you, just think about this. Think about a resume, what a resume does. That's a validating performance record, okay? You, You have certain jobs, schooling, all that kind of stuff. You put that into your resume. And hopefully it opens doors for you think of a portfolio think of your gpa think of an academic degree that you get a certification in something think of getting credentialed to do something okay you do all this stuff and then the performance record is your gpa the performance record is the certificate that you got or the credentials that you were given because of the work you did. It hopefully opens a door for you, right? So you apply for a grant, you apply to a school, you apply for a job, you bring in your credentials into the interaction, and your credentials validate you, and hopefully they open a door for you. So you get the grant, you get the job, that sort of thing. So righteousness refers to a moral record that you bring to God. It's your spiritual credentials. Every religion shows you how to acquire a good moral or spiritual record that is going to open a door for you to the God, a God, or gods. Every religion does that. Christianity is no different. I want you to get the impact of what I just said, because you might be wondering, wait. Christianity is no different. You have to bring a moral record to God in order to be acceptable to God. And it's got to be a really, really good moral record. Now, here's what's different about Christianity. The moral record you bring is God's. That's what you bring. You bring God's moral record. In Christianity, the only valid credentials are God's credentials, His righteousness. That's what this passage is about. It's how do do you get accepted by God? You actually are given God's credentials, God's righteousness, and that is what you present to God. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. What does that mean? Apart from, well, first you've got to become Jewish, live under the Torah, keep the Torah. That's what he's talking about, the law. He's talking about the Torah, the laws of God from the Old Testament. He says, apart from that kind of performance record, you are now made right with God. Um, Verse 24, for all are justified freely by His grace. We are justified freely. Not like not by our performance, not our moral record, not our spiritual resume, our GPA, our portfolio. It's free. It's God's grace. Grace means undeserved favor. He shows favor to us, and it's undeserved. We have not deserved it. And as Paul repeats over and over again in this passage, it has to be received by faith. All right, now, He's going to pick up on that faith thing and he's going to start talking about that from uh, verse 27 to the end of the chapter and all of chapter 4. It's a huge subject in this letter. And so we'll be dealing with that uh, very soon here um, in another sermon. Uh, but, But Keller, what he does is, after talking about this validating performance record, he says, here's a couple of examples. And I think these examples are helpful. If you've ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire... I think it was the best movie of 1980, and it feels like a 1980s movie if you watch it now. Um, In Chariots of Fire, my my favorite movie for years and years is about these Olympians. It's mostly the story of Eric Little, but it's probably as much a story about Harold Abrahams. And so um, this is a terrible moment in the life of Abrahams when he gets beat by Eric Little. Uh, And I think this is the Olympic race, where he's getting beat by Eric Little in the Olympic race for qualifying. And it's a scene uh, that where that comes after this, where, Abraham's is going to run his last race. Now, these are in the days when you couldn't make a living by being part of, you know, the, um, part of the Olympics, you know, or Olympian. You you had to you did that, and when you were done with that, you you go get a job. You start making some money. And so Her- Harold Abraham's is about to run his last. Race His very last race. He's getting, if you remember the scene, he's getting massaged by his coach. He hired a personal coach. Nobody else did that, all right? He's got his personal coach, and he's getting, and he's talking to his friend, Aubrey, who is a fellow Olympian, and this is what he says. He says, now, in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my experience. <laughs> but will I? Not my, my experience, my existence. <laughs> Ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. Keller notes that the director, movie director, Sidney Pollack, died in 2008, but he was very sick for several years before that. And every year he would put out a movie and put out another movie. And it was wearing him down. And he could lengthen his life. Whatever illness that it was that he had, his family kept telling him, you can live longer if you stop making movies. These things are you know, just killing you. They're literally killing you with what you have. And he said, uh, he, said he can't justify his, his existence if he stops. He said, every time I finish another picture, I feel I have earned my stay for another year or so. And you go, well, these people are just fanatical, but every single one of us does this. Every single one of us has a version of that. We want to validate our existence through family, through our kids, through success. It can be success in business or in sports or success in ministry even. We want to validate our existence through money or, or through power. Everyone is looking, every single one of us is looking to validate our existence, if you stop and think about it, there are things that you are doing that can stir that up in you. This is, this is what makes my life worthwhile. This is what makes me, you know, worthy of having breath still in my life. Everyone has a version of that. But to be justified freely means an end to the struggle for Validation. Because when we're justified, we are given the righteousness of God as the record that gives us access to God and makes a relationship with Him possible. This is all under justification. This is what justification is about. We're given God's credentials. As it were, His GPA, His resume, His portfolio. So if you've been around here for a while, you've heard me talk about the steps to God and how all religions, they you know, you, you, you've got to accumulate that moral record, right? And so a, a picture of that can be this long staircase, a really difficult staircase to go up. And so you work your way up that staircase and that staircase stands for you're building up a moral record. You know, the difficulties of saying no to temptation and trying to do good things for people who are hurting and trying to be a good person. So every religion has you know, these requirements and you work your way up that staircase and when you get to the top, there is a door and that is the door to access to God. And God, you knock on the door and God opens the door at the top and says, why should I let you in? And you go, oh, my moral record, I present that to you. In Christianity, the door is at the bottom of the stairs, the door is at the bottom of the stairs. We knock on the door and God says, why should I let you in? And we say, your record, the righteousness of Christ, that is my validating record. That's... And then guess what? There's still a staircase. <laughs> It's just you don't do it on your own. You're not trying to prove anything. You're not trying to validate yourself. The staircase is just life is difficult. But you do it with God. With God. You understand? One you're trying to do, and yeah, you're asking God for help and everything like that. The other one, the only way you're validated is because of God's record. You receive that by faith. You're let, Then you together with God in a relationship with him you climb those steps together. Completely different. There is no other message, no other religion that has that kind of message. You see, to be justified means that a new status has actually been bestowed on you, a new status with all the rights, privileges, and benefits of that status. It's more than forgiveness. Keller says, It's like you come, you present God's credentials, and no matter what your life has been, you're given the Medal of Honor. (laughs) Not based on your record, but based on Christ's record. And so, in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is one of the greatest places where this is spoken of. It says, God made him, speaking of Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So, TV show, The Good Place. I'm about to, spoiler alert, all right? If you haven't watched it before now, too bad. You can do this, I suppose. If you'd like. That's what I do. When somebody starts talking about a movie I haven't seen, I don't want to hear it. So, in The Good Place... um, we saw the first two seasons, never saw the third season, so when I read this, it was like, okay, you just spo- spoiled my third season of the show. Uh, but, but here it is, the good place is heaven, and uh, you got Ted Danson, who in the first season seems to be an angel, and you got Chris, I can't remember her name. Um, you got her and a bunch of other people who seem to be in the good place by accident. You find out at the end of the season, they're not in the good place. They are being tortured by demons. Uh, And he's a demon. He's not an angel. And so the second season, he's a good demon. (laughs) And so he he gets to like these folks and he wants to help them make it into the good place. So the whole second season is about them trying to help them Acquire a record to get into the good place. I don't know if it happened, I, I don't remember it happening at the end of the second season, but what you eventually find out is that no one makes it into the good place. No one. Um, and Ted Danson is like trying to figure out how how can this be that no one acquires a good enough record to make it in. So he does some digging and he eventually explains to the group that he's been trying to help get into the good place how it works. He says if you buy a tomato in the grocery store, you get points against you. Think of all the tomatoes you bought, all the other things you bought, all the other things that you've done like this. It says you get minus 12.368 points. They can be precise, it's a, it's a comedy, All right, it's a show. So 12.368 points against you for buying a tomato, why? Well, you are supporting toxic pesticides, you are uh, ex- supporting exploitative labor, and you are contributing to global warming. So when he explains this, I mean, one of the characters goes, oh, this is a game that you can't win. He goes, yeah, <laughs> nobody does. Nobody wins. Okay, it's like the Apostle Paul up until really verse 23 in a sense. He introduces a little bit of Ray of Hope, but from 118 all the way at least till 320, He has been dashing all hope. I mean, dashing hope. He's like, we are living under God's wrath. It is like, it's bad. We're under God's judgment because we turned away from him, and we've made this crazy world that we live in, and he's like, you can have it. And if you think you're going to be okay because you are under the Torah and you're part of God's covenant people, guess what? You fail as well. And if you think you're really moral, look again, you're not that good. All right? And so in the good place, it's a world that is all law and no gospel or grace. All law. And it's precise. You know, I talk about the sin being like a pebble. The good place Define sin that way. <laughs> like you bought that tomato, it wasn't just a tomato. <laughs> Whether you agree with everything that was said there, okay? It wasn't just a tomato. You said a white lie, it wasn't just a white lie. You said something cruel to someone, it wasn't just one instance of cruelty. That continues to have an impact on them. Other people heard you, they now have, look at that. It is, it is like an ever-expanding, our sin does that. And the Apostle Paul is saying basically, this is exactly like the Good Place show. But now. Get it? But now something completely different. A righteousness, apart from your performance, has been made known. This righteousness is what we're talking about right now. All right? So, um, what does Jesus' death accomplish for us? Well, uh, It accomplishes justification for those who put their faith in Christ's righteousness because when we put our faith in Christ's righteousness, uh, His righteousness is put into our account. We are declared, credited as righteous. That is accomplished for us. And then we can present Christ's righteousness to God as our credentials, as our resume, as our validating credentials, okay? Okay. So, that's what justification is about. We are declared righteous. The second one is redemption. And so, it says in verse 24, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Verse 24, And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, to redeem just basically means to buy something back or liberate through a purchase. That's what it means, basically. But when... Jesus talked about redemption, when Paul talked about redemption, when any first century Jew talked about redemption, they had a whole story that they saw that word through. A whole story. Not, it wasn't just this basic definition. They had a whole story that helped them understand what redemption is. Remember, Jesus, Paul, the Jews, every person in the New Testament, their Bible was the Old Testament. That was their Bible. For everybody in the, first, in the first century, that was their Bible. And that Bible impacted how they saw things. And that Bible shaped, it was a story that shaped how they saw everything. And so this word is impacted by one Bible story. And so it's the Exodus story. So the Exodus story of God redeeming Israel from slavery in Egypt it's more than a story from the past that Israel simply tried to remember. Like, this is a really good thing to remember. Let's remember. We used to be slaves. It's so much more than that. It is the story by which and in which Israel and first century Judaism saw its whole story. And knowing that story is essential for understanding what redemption in Christ means. Okay, here's, here's what I mean. Um, you know how when you're going to buy a car, a uh, car? and you're shopping and you're, you know, everything like that, all of a sudden you start seeing that car everywhere, right? Uh, So I just recently bought a used Mazda CX-5. I'm not sure I'd ever seen one before. Now I see it everywhere. Because I'm not a car guy, so I just don't notice those things. And so, uh, same thing. Uh, When people study all the writings of the first century, two or three centuries, and the Old Testament, when they study it and discovered that the story of the Exodus is like this story that shapes everything. It's only in recent, really in the last three or four decades, that scholars have all of a sudden gone, oh, that's where Christianity was birthed, and it was birthed out of Judaism, and it's birthed, uh, with this Bible that you can be a Gentile, but within a year, you're like an expert in it. You understand how the Old Testament all points to Jesus, and, and you can quote it. I mean, that's, that's how the New, the New Testament church worked. And so, they all started understanding that, oh, if Judaism of that day saw everything through the prism of the Exodus, maybe the New Testament did too. And once they realized that, they saw it everywhere. And they weren't imagining it. It's like Jesus, the story of the Gospels, are shaped by the Exodus story. In so many ways, subtle ways, really direct ways, it's just completely shaped by the Exodus story. So, um, that story is really important for understanding redemption. It's not a simple definition. It's an entire story. And the best thing I could think of to compare with it is, if you've studied... Uh, preaching in the African-American church during slavery, uh, Jim Crow, uh, in more recent times, the Exodus story, it shapes so much of the preaching. It's like it's the go-to story for understanding their own story. So Esau McCulley, uh, who I've quoted before, and he's a New Testament professor at Wheaton, he's African-American, New Testament um, PhD guy. He, I was listening to an interview just recently with him, and he was talking about an article that he wrote several years ago. And the article was called, Two Boats, One Gospel. He says, how you understand that gospel, and it is one gospel, it's not like two different gospels, it's one gospel, but how you see it, how it impacts your life depends to some degree, not to every, you know full degree, but to some degree on whether you identify with the people who came over on the Mayflower or you identify with the people who came over on slave ships. And so when you realize that, you start realizing why they're gonna hear the Exodus story in the way that the Jews heard the Exodus story. And it shaped everything that they did. So when Paul speaks about redemption, it's this whole story of redemption. Is part of what he means and what he's thinking about, Israel's escape from slavery. Um, now, even for Greek society, the word redemption was used for someone buying their way out of slavery. So a lot of the slaves in first century were not, it wasn't chattel slavery, you know, like I own this person. Uh, it was, you're my slave, you have to do what I say, but you get paid and you can buy your way out or someone else can buy you out of it. And so they use that word redemption. But it's a story of Israel that is really in the background. In Paul, the redemption comes not not from slavery, but a different kind of slavery. Okay, it is slavery, but it's a slavery to sin. It's a huge theme in Paul's theology. So we oftentimes talk about Okay, so we not only sin, but we are under the power of sin. So to really understand, if you're reading your Bible and you want to understand what Paul is saying, pay attention to the word sin. And it's not just Paul. Pay attention. Is it singular? Is it speaking of it singularly or is it a plural? When it's singular, it's talking about sin as a power that enslaves us. When it talks about sins, it's talking about individual actions that we do because of being in our response to being under the power of sin. So sin is a master and we are sin slaves. And you'll never understand Romans 6, we'll get there, but Romans 6 is all about being liberated from slavery, redemption. It doesn't, I don't even think it uses the word redemption, but it's all about redemption. How we got liberated as Christians from slavery to the power of sin. Jesus liberates us and he does it By paying our debt. Again, something they would have understood in the first century. That's how you wound up, either through war or some other way, and somebody gives money and pays the debt that you owe so that you can be freed. Okay, we got justification. We've got redemption. Hopefully, a little bit deeper understanding of that or a review for some. The third one is atonement or propitiation. So, verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Now, I got the ESV up here because we're going to use the ESV translation for this today. Um, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. All right, so both translations are good. It's a very complex subject as to uh, what is the word behind the Greek word, one Greek word that the NIV translates sacrifice of atonement, and the ESV Uh, translates propitiation, all right? Uh, We're going to go with propitiation, and there's a very simple reason for that. Uh, It's not that one's better than the other. It's just atonement is a word that sometimes we use in everyday language. So, you know, we might say, well, by doing that, he atoned for everything he did before. You know, we might say that. Uh, Not common, but we might say that. Did anybody in everyday language this week use the word propitiation? (laughs) Propitiation. like at work or at school? Nobody did. Okay, so that's why I want to use that one because it begs the question, what in the world is he talking about? Okay, so, so here it is. Um, why does the shedding of Christ's blood do anything and what does it do? It propitiates. That's the answer. So what is propitiation? Propitiation refers to the removal of God's wrath against sin. Again, got to go back to 118 where it says God's wrath, and it's not, remember, you weren't here just to make clear, it's not like, ah, type anger, okay? God's wrath is, is a very measured, appropriate anger against sin, and so God's wrath has been kindled and is, is being expressed right now toward us because we, instead of worshiping Him, worship what He created And therefore, he gave us over. That is the expression of his wrath. He gives us over to what we wanted to pursue. We get the world that we have. All right? So, propitiation is about the removal of that wrath. It's about the removal of that wrath. So, you've heard me quote Yale theologian Miroslav Volf before. I want to give you a much longer quote than I've ever, I think, given Um, and it's on the importance of understanding God's wrath. And this is, this is what he says. He's a, he's a theologian at Yale. Keep that in mind. He says, uh, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? And you, and you may be having that thought right now. It's like, especially if you're new to 5.0, you might go like, what kind of church did I just walk into? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, he says, and God's love gloves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region where I come from. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade or of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. 800,000 hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to that carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? (laughs) By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. I've talked about this recently in our theology series that we did, but it's popular in some circles these days to talk about the doctrine of propitiation and say, there is no way that can be true. The Bible doesn't teach it. What you're describing is divine child abuse. God, the Father, gives His Son to be a blood sacrifice. We should recoil, they say, at that idea. And boldly stated like that, yeah, we should recoil. But I've said it before and I'll say it again. Any five-ochre, kind of a an educated 13-year-old in Five Oaks with a rudimentary understanding of the, of, of the Trinity can refute that idea, that kind of teaching. And then you have words from Jesus himself. Now, because of the Trinity, God himself, um, it was God himself who went to the cross. There's only one God in three persons. You can't pit the persons of the Trinity against each other. So listen to how Jesus explains this. It's not, it's complicated. The Trinity is like incomprehensible, but it's not that complicated to answer this. So here's what Jesus says. He says, for even the son of man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Gives, he gives his life as a ransom for many. In John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is my comment here that I should have taken out. He's talking about his sacrificial death in this context. As you read the whole thing, that's what he's talking about. And then the Apostle Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself. The Son of God gave himself for me. Jesus, it's not like the father, you know, like dragged Jesus over to a funeral pyre or or a a sacrificial, you know, and, and then, you know, killed him. Jesus gave his life. Now, some others in the group say, well, the doctrine of propitiation, it's a modern invention, meaning the last thousand years. The early church didn't talk about this. It's simply too easy to refute. And so I've I've put in a couple of of articles on this this subject in your uh, sermon application guide. Because if you ever do one of those searches, you know, that says, arguments against Christianity, this one's going to come up. (laughs) All right. Uh, Along with thousands of others. All right. So, here's a pastoral word to our congregation, all right? I get really deeply concerned when people who profess to be Christians never come to terms with the biblical witness concerning God's wrath against us. I understand it, but I become really concerned. I'm not saying you have to be emotionally like good with it. I'm not saying like you get warm fuzzies when you think of God's wrath. <laughs> If, if you do, I've got a different worry for you, okay? So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a settled conviction, a settled conviction about God's judgment, that God is a God who judges, and that is the right thing to do. That is the loving thing to do. Now, this is a hard subject. When I was in high school, this was the point where I was either going to turn away from Christ or keep following Christ. So I've been struggling with this one for years. You might be at the beginning of the struggle. You might be right in the middle of it, ready to walk away from Christianity because of this subject. You may be at the end, or you may be one of these people that you've kind of done some jujitsu in your head, and you just don't even want to think about it, and you just, you're unsettled about it, but you just don't think about it. But as long as this remains kind of a festering wound in your faith, I'm afraid that you have really not looked at the evil in your own life, the evil that you have perpetrated. You still think that, that the, your sins are little pebbles that drop in the water and they go away, and you still have not seen that your sins have rippled out in horrific ways. Horrific ways. I'm afraid you haven't not only not faced the fear the the, the evil in your own heart and in your life you haven't come to terms with your need for propitiation. And if you don't see the need for propitiation, then you can't see the incredible glory of God's grace in the fact that He went to the cross to experience His own wrath against sin. All right, That He took it on Himself. You'll never see that because this festering wound is keeping you from being able to see that. You need to work through that i not saying it may take years, but at some point you've got to come out at the other side. And until you do, the cross will not have the meaning that it's meant to have in your life or the impact that it's meant to have in your life. So, this other quote from Wolf is one that you've heard me use more often. And he says this It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis. That human nonviolence is the result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception, and did not make a final end of violence in the final judgment, That God would not be worthy of our worship. He says this at Yale. I don't know how he gets away with it. (laughs) Here's my translation of it the idea that God doesn't get angry and judge us for our evil, that's the new invention. Nobody's had trouble understanding that. A new invention that is birthed in the comfort of cushy lives. Okay, I want to ask you a couple questions. Anybody been worried at any point in your life that a marauding, okay, people who grew up in the United States, that a marauding army is going to come through your town, take your boys as slaves, and rape all your women? We haven't had to worry about anything like that since the Civil War. We've got militarily weak neighbors to the north and the south of us. We've got oceans on each side. We don't experience that. In, in like world history and right now in other countries, we have, in that sense, cushy lives. I've never had to kill my own food. I am so far removed. I grew up in the suburbs. I'm not a hunter. I grew up so far from ever having to kill an animal and skin it and cook it, you know that kind of a thing. I'm so far from that that I cannot kill a mammal. I could set a trap, I could kill it indirectly, but if I had a, you know, frying pan and there was a mouse there or even a rat, I don't know that I could hit it because I don't have to do that I, in my life, you know. I don't have to do that. i just leave the house and hire an exterminator, you know, that kind of a thing. And that's exactly what I would do. If we had an apocalypse and we had to live in the woods, I'd be the first one to die. It's, no doubt about it, I'd be the first one to die. So, and then we, we, we don't even know the horrors of war anymore. Not really. I mean, some people do because, you know, you may have known people in recent wars who have died in horrible ways. But um, I just read this week that the last Pearl Harbor survivor died. So pretty soon, people who lived through that time are going to be gone a time when something like 75 million estimated people died we 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 don't have a conception of that at all that's what i mean by cushy lives i'm not saying you can get cancer terrible things can happen abuse all kinds of things but these kinds of things were are very far removed from them so i'm deeply concerned with professing christians who never come to terms with the biblical witness against on on god's wrath because This world is filled with incredible, incredible evil. But the reality of God's wrath, it can become a settled conviction by facing the evil in our own hearts and lives and the evil in our world. Then we begin to marvel at God's grace and his unbounded and incomprehensible sacrifice. It will change the way you worship and it will change the way you live. It is worth it to get to the other side to that settled conviction. The, the answer that the world gives is so dissatisfactory. I mean, just even doubt your doubts. If you had your doubts about Christianity, doubt your doubts. Look at the other answers to human evil. None of them have anything like what the gospel proclaims. Not anything like it whatsoever. Get your, um, get your communion ready. Get the bread. Don't eat it yet. Take off that little pesky cover. Get ready with the bread and hear these words of the Apostle Paul that he wrote to the Corinthians. Talking about the Lord's Supper that we're about to experience almost 2,000 years later. He said, for I received from the Lord what I have passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, "The cup, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim the Lord's death. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are willing to absorb your wrath against sin on yourself on the cross. It's an amazing, epic story, and it's true. Father, I pray for anyone here today who is in the midst of struggling with just even the idea of your wrath. I pray, Father, that they would walk with you through that struggle, not running away from you, but walk with you through that struggle. Father, I pray for anyone who maybe today understands what it means to become a Christian. This is something you have to receive by faith. You didn't get it from your parents. You didn't get it from going to church. You didn't get it from being baptized. You didn't even get it from praying a prayer. You get it by putting your faith, putting our faith in you. And I pray, Father, if anybody here today is ready, that they would step forward right now, take that step, journey back to you, take that one step by putting their faith in you. We thank you, Father.